this week on the Backtable Podcast. Listen, I'm interested in finances, so I'm willing to spend time. I think financial advisors, good financial advisors, outweigh their costs. The problem is there's far more bad financial advisors or very mediocre financial advisors than there are good ones. And so whether you choose to use a financial advisor or not, it's very important that you learn some basics of finances. And the other thing is just don't try to hit home runs on your investments. Try to do little little things and you will be fine if you continue, you know, in as a physician making good income, you will be fine. everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your floral guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, and my guest today is Dr. Tarang Patel, diagnostic radiologist in Phoenix and creator of the Dr. Money Matters platform. Tarang, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your practice and your career journey? Sure. So I'm a diagnostic radiologist. I uh, practice uh, body with you know, some general uh, and trauma. I'm at a large tertiary facility here in Phoenix, and I've been here for about 12 years now. Prior to that, I was in fellowship. Prior to that, I was in the Air Force doing radiology. And now it seems like forever ago, it's in residency in New York. So, you know, but I've been at this particular job for about 12 years now, a long time. Great. And what got you motivated to dive deep into physician finances and community building? I've always been interested in finance. You know, I first started out in undergrad as a business major and then switched to biology and, you know, did the pre-med route at that point. But I always kind of had the background interest in finance. Fast forward after you spent all those years in medical school and residency and just kind of get through it, you come out of training. And for me, it was actually out after even during the Air Force time, because as many of radiologists and other uh, physicians who are served in the military know that if you're a specialist, you tend to earn less in the military than you do in the, uh, in, the, in the private world. But so when I got out of training and out of my Air Force commitment, you know, all of a sudden I had an increase in income and I didn't know what exactly to do, the right decision. I'd seen people make some not so great decisions and I was just trying to figure out what would be, and myself, I had also made some kind of you know, dumb mistakes uh, along the way. But when, when it came to learning about it, I was like, well, let me figure it out. This was around the depths of the financial crisis. So I definitely had seen a lot of people make those kind of mistakes. And I was like, let me learn a little bit about it. And then it just kind of rekindled my interest in finances from back in undergrad. So when did you start your platform of Dr. Money Matters? I started the group 2015, 16, somewhere in that time, I think late 2015. And then I thought about doing a podcast. I'd listened to podcasts for a couple of years before that. And at the time, 
it was a little bit more complicated in terms of getting it going. And, you know, many radiologists are interested in technology, so I kind of dove deep into that process. And then I kind of figured it out. And at the time, there weren't very many podcasts geared towards physicians. And so I started trying to incorporate some of the mistakes that I had made and some of my colleagues had made in finances, because that's what I was interested in. I figured other people would probably have some of the same questions. And so I thought, okay, let's let's kind of go in to this. And my goal was never to, you know, come off as an expert myself because I'm certainly not, but I, I'm in the process of learning and I brought on good guests that could give me insight. Uh, and then I figured if I'm learning simultaneously, my community and, and listeners can learn as well. Got it. I guess that's been a big question from our audience for in preparation of this podcast is what are some of the major financial mistakes that you see young radiologists make? It's interesting. When I came out, and I, I think some of the mistakes are consistent over time. I mean, I just think all people who go through long periods of training, I should say most people who go through long periods of training kind of have this, you know, deferred gratification thing. And, you know, we spend a lot of time getting to where we're at, spend a lot of money and a lot of hours, and you kind of feel like you deserve something. And I don't disagree with that. It's the extent of what many of us do that puts us in in tough spots. So, of course, making huge purchases, a nice home your first year out of training when you may not be, you know, in that job very long. I mean, as as you're aware, many of us switch jobs more frequently than that was the case in the past. And so you don't want to be locked in into those kind of financial decisions. So I think that's probably the first thing is maybe not quite getting settled, but making big financial commitments before you do that. Yeah, that seems to be a, a recurring theme from reading through White Coat Investor, things like that. Um, anything specific for radiologists that we end up doing that hurts us? I think it's tougher in radiology, just the practice environment is changing so much now and, and has, you know, for the, probably for the last six to seven years, probably been in flux more so than it was ever previously. And so it's harder to plan now. And, and that makes it even tougher for new grads because they're doing longer training. Pretty much, I think 20, 30 years ago, not everyone did fellowships. More people are obviously doing them now, longer fellowships. And then they come out to a practice that, you know, 10 years or 20 years ago may have been a 10-person practice, a 15, 20-person practice. Now there's a trend of mega groups, whether they're the big private equity national groups or whether they're big, you know, city-dominated private groups. And so it's a much more corporate feel, which gives you as the individual radiologist less flexibility. And that's okay because you also get some stability out of it potentially, but the practice won't be able to adjust to your individual situation as much as, you know, may have been the case before. Sure. I know that there is a little bit of a shakeup in Phoenix about the private practice situation. Yeah. A lot of our listeners aren't totally familiar with what's going on there. So do you think you could kind of provide a summary of all that's gone down? Sure. So, so Phoenix is the kind of one of the early places um, that radiology private equity and actually really a lot of medical private equity took place. When I got here in 2011 in, in my current job, there wasn't really any you know private equity per se, other than I think one of the anesthesia groups locally had was being researched and per, you know in the process of making a deal. Three, four years later, a lot of private equity stuff happened and the radiology groups in town, there were three dominant groups that kind of had merged their back office operations to become more streamlined. They had kind of come together overall then 
because they were approached by Rad Partners and probably other private equity firms at the time to do a deal. So in late 2017, the groups here, you know, had merged. And this was like, I think, the flagship deal at the time for Rad Partners. So well over 100 plus radiologists came together and sold their practices. And basically the town of Phoenix, which is, you know, 5 million plus town, had one dominant private practice at that point then. Is that is that your group? No, I'm a hospital employed uh, radiologist. Now, five years later, the first cycle of that deal has come to fruition. So, you know, the people who signed on the contract initially received pretty significant cash buyout. The partners did anyway. And sure. the commitment was for five years, meaning that, you know, after that five-year lockup, you could leave the practice, you could, you, and keep your, the, the money that they gave you. Otherwise, they would take some back, the shares, whatever. In Phoenix, it happened to be much more cash heavy. Later on, private equity places offered more shares into their company. But right now, at that time, it was more cash heavy. And so in December of 2022, was that five-year lockup ended, and there was a significant exodus of uh, radiologists from this practice. So what's going on with those practices now? <laughs> what are they what are they trying to do? Well, that's a great question. I mean, they're hanging on, you know. I I know they're they've been advertising a lot for coverage. They've been trying to hire 60 or so radiologist positions on the ACR job site, most of in, in Arizona, most of them in Phoenix with one of the branches of the group. So, I don't know how successful they've been. I mean, I'm sure they've had some people come in because I've seen new names, but it's only a month out, so we'll see how long it goes. Uh, anecdotally and informally, people have talked to me, but it's been interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. You don't really want to get into that. I could tell. Okay. No and problem. I don't know if they want me to say those things. So. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about kind of like the cash versus shares. For those, of, for those younger folks who maybe don't know much about that, could you kind of talk a little bit about the buyout? options that private equity usually gives these practices and what it means for people at different cycles of their career? Sure. Initially, what was happening was that they wanted deals to get done. And so the best way to incentivize a deal getting done is offering people money, obviously. And so if you're in like the later stages of your career, you know, you don't want to necessarily take a gamble on a company with shares because you have no idea what's going to happen with those with the share value. It could go up, it could go down, just like the stock market in general. But you know what cash is worth. And and so what they had offered initially to a lot of these groups was cash heavy, whether it was 90% cash, 10% shares, 80, 20, you know, it was just much more cash heavy. And the senior partners in the groups who were closer to retirement and and many actually who have talked to me later said that it was even mid-career people also gravitated towards those because you wanted to guarantee yourself something. So the buyouts, you know, had been in the multi-million dollar realm per partner. So if the group, you know, received, if you have a 50-person group and the group received $100 million, if 30 of you were partners, the partners decided how that was divided up. You know, they got the cash and so that incentivized more of them to take the deal. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, definitely makes sense. Do you think that, you know, back in 2017, 2018, when this was starting out, that they foresaw that it would be so hard to hire younger folks with deals like this in place? You know, two things. I'm not sure what the private equity executives of the national corporation honestly thought. I can't imagine that anyone who would have run, you know, some analysis on it would think 
that, yeah, we'll just be able to, you know, there'll be an indefinite supply of people and we'll be able to get them at a lower income. Because I did a podcast with Kurt Shoppe and we were one of the earlier ones to do it. And this was in 2018. So just a year into the deal. And we said, well, this is a bad deal for young radiologists. So, you know, I don't think that they foresaw the shortage of radiologists that we currently have. I mean, we were trending in that direction, but the, the current shortage is significantly worse than I've seen in my career. So I don't think they foresaw that. But the only way private equity works is by paying the younger radiologists, the new people less, or even, but you don't get any of the buyouts. So, you know, ultimately it's less. You know, I can't imagine how they didn't see it would be harder to recruit. Yeah, now it, you're probably having a little bit of Schadenfreude, right? Like seeing all this go down in your home market and <laughs> it's, <laughs> being able to watch from the sidelines. I mean, it is, it's, 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 you know, unfortunately, I don't want to see my colleagues struggle, whether they're in a private equity practice, whether they're in their, you know, private, regular private practice, because ultimately bad conditions for radiologists lead to bad patient care, lead to bad, you know, system-wide uh, issues. So, Ultimately, we want everything to work out well for the radiologists. I'm not too disappointed that the national company's having a hard time, to be quite honest with you, because I just don't think they were ever good for radiology. I think they were good for certain radiologists. And that's what, you know, I have no qualms with the radiologists taking the money who are senior partners. We all want to guarantee something in our lives and stability and things like that. And, you know, looking from healthcare from a broader perspective, we're always dealing with financial issues that are, you know, reimbursements coming down, insurance companies giving us a hard time about procedures, pre-authorizations, you name it. And so guaranteeing something is not, you know, I don't think it was a bad thing for them. But the problem that I had was them trying to sell it to younger people saying, no, no, this is going to be good. And we're going to use this technology and we're going to do all these things that it's going to be great. You knew it was the money. Just admit it was the money and no one would say anything bad. But when you told us that it's going to be something great and revolutionary, no. I mean, that I had a hard time believing. So what do you see as the path forward for a lot of these PE companies that are having trouble hiring and can't really recruit younger radiologists? This is why these executives get paid the big bucks. I mean, the reality is I don't see a great path forward for them because I don't see in the current market, when, when you had zero interest rates, uh, zero, you, know, you could borrow as much money as you wanted and throw things and something would stick. And, and if you know 10 investments didn't make money, but the other one made money, great. It's no longer the case. Right now, you can put your money in, in a bank CD and get 4% interest. Most of these investors in these private equity companies are these large pension funds and large institutional firms. They don't want home runs, but they want guaranteed with low risk. And they want, you know, a certain percentage of returns. Well, now they can get 4% without any risk. They might want 7 or 8%. And the risk of a private equity investment all of a sudden now seems much more risky than it did two, three years ago. So I can't imagine new investment coming in. I guess, can we talk about that? We talked about the financial buyout that a lot of the partners gave, but can you give me your perspective on the the shares for the private equity that are also part of a lot of the buyout plans for some of the more recent private equity buyouts? Sure. Again, what I've seen, and I've had some people send me what was pitched to them uh, when their practices were going through this. I don't have firsthand dealings because I haven't done the deals myself. But from what people have told me, what, I've, what they've sent me is that the shares you know, basically right now, again, these are privately traded shares, so there's no absolute value. They're basically worth what the company has told you they're worth. 
And the, you know, the goal at least five years ago was that they would eventually become public and then go, you know, you would 5X, 10X your money with these things because that's what private companies who go public tend to do in the long term. That hasn't come to happen yet. And in the current financial market, I can't see that path going forward for them unless the government all of a sudden slashes interest rates again and we go back to what we had in 2020 at 2021. I don't see that happening. The other path going forward is another company buying them out. So a larger private equity fund saying, hey, you know what? We like what you guys are doing and we think we can grow this to another level. So most of these funds, let's say they're the share is worth $10 and, and you know they give you 10,000 shares, let's say. So you have $100,000 in shares. There's no liquid market currently. So sometimes if you want to leave the practice before the company sells, you may be able to sell them back to the private equity firm. And I've heard of a few people doing that. However, if enough people want to leave, they're not going to buy them back, at least at the current market share. They might say, okay, well, we'll buy them at a lower share. So what ends up happening is most people just, even those who have left, the senior part is the few shares they had, they just keep them. And basically they think, okay, if they're worth something in the end, great. If not- It's a sunk cost. Exactly. And the one thing that they do say is uh, they do do some payouts per share. So they do pay some dividends uh, per share. The companies can decide how much they're going to pay out because they create the valuations for the share and it's not necessarily how much- Exactly. Your practice has no control in that sense. Mm, Okay. This is really helpful. I personally have never worked for a private equity company, you know, radiology practice either. I've been in private practice for a while, but no, haven't had to do that yet. It's just, it's kind of interesting to watch from the sidelines, right? How this stuff is shaken out. One comment is interesting because your audience, of course, is uh, more vascular and IR. And it was, was something that's interesting that I'm seeing is that there's a now a more of a divergence happening. And so in Indianapolis, a very large multi-specialty or uh, you know, multi-radiology uh, group recently had their contract terminated by their health system. And they, they covered everything, you know, and they were historically with this practice for a long time. But what's happened is the private equity group that's taking over is only going to do, as far as my understanding is, diagnostic radiology. And the IRs are now going to be split and part of a hospital-employed situation, or at least that's the goal. So the hospital is hiring IRs and vascular surgeons as part of their vascular practice. The private equity component is going to only hire diagnostic radiologists. And, and, and we're seeing you know, an already somewhat splitting of our profession accelerated, I think, with, with people who are you know, saying, okay, that's fine with us because we're the executives of the firm and we don't care. It's, it's kind of disappointing. A disappointing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I can see that from both perspectives. Like a lot of younger IRs, they want to be more clinical. And the, the way to do that is to be hospital employed, unfortunately. What do you think that's going to mean for the IRDR split? You think it's going to accelerate it? I mean, I think so. I tend to come off more negative than most of my uh, colleagues. And I don't, you know, especially on podcasts and stuff like that, I don't want to sound like that because I want to give hope. But at the same time, I, I just don't see how this goes back because it's true. I think a lot of IR newer grads want to do clinical work because they've started being trained in more clinical work and that's what they want. That's why they went into IR. They didn't necessarily, I mean, they did the DR part of IR, but I think it was more of a, this is me just speaking as what I observe is they used it as a pathway to become IR and that's fine. And vice versa, a lot of diagnostic grads 
also don't want to do any procedural work and, you know, and limited, limited patient interaction. Other, you know, you could even say that you may see a split down the line in MAMO versus, you know, diagnostic radiology too. I mean, it's, it's a similar thing to a smaller scale, but yeah, I fortunately do see that this kind of thing is accelerating a splitting of our professions. And maybe we go along the ways of RADONC and radiology and IR will be another specialty under the broad board of the American Board of Radiology, but completely, you know, separate. I don't know. Is there a similar shakeup with the IRDR contracts in Phoenix? Interestingly, at my own system, we had a splitting. We were all employed by the hospital and our interventionalists recently split off and went private, which is kind of the reverse of the scenario we were just saying. And, you know, I don't want to get into too many details on that part, but it was for pursuing opportunities. And they still cover our hospital, you know, the same that they did before. And we interact with them just as we did before. But it is now, we used to be one group hospital employed, and now we are hospital employed diagnostic radiologists and private practice IR. But as far as the private equity firm, currently no they are not splitting that yet, will they? I mean, I can't imagine why they wouldn't. As my understanding is they're trying to decrease as much on-site DR staffing as possible because that's the only way they can cover. So yeah, I, I can see that going that way, but I don't know if it has yet. That's pretty interesting. The one thing about that is not having any DRs in a hospital means that IR doctors have to do a lot of the stuff that were basically anything that involves patient care, right? So like any fluoro, some of the, you know, stuff that maybe the diagnostic colleagues in a certain group would do, like minor IR procedures, anything that involves talking or touching a patient. And so I think a lot of young IRs might say, well, it's good if we're hospital employed, but if you're the only radiologist in a hospital, you're doing everything. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, there were times during COVID when I was the only radiologist in the hospital and it's not easy. It's just, it's a different you think you can't do like a four-hour case if you also have to read the strokes off the CT scanner at the same time. Absolutely. Things like that. So yeah. So I think it's easy to see the, be an optimist and maybe see that would be good for IR. But at the same time, I think it's going to, there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences, unforeseen I I, circumstances. I, yeah. I think there always are. And when you're an executive and you're not a physician or you're not a radiologist, it makes sense to be like, why am I having a radiologist there? But you don't realize all the other stuff that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that is not reading a scan. Historically, you know, doing a Thora, an LP, a para, thyroid biopsy, joint aspirations, even like, you know, abscess drainages, liver biopsies, things like that, were all under the realm of general diagnostic radiology training. Vascular and, you know, more complicated procedures were obviously IR, but all those things were historically done by diagnostic radiologists. Well, that seems to be becoming less and less the case. And, then, you know, I'm not going to say good or bad about it. The, the fact is fewer radiologists and quite honestly, fewer physicians feel comfortable doing any invasive procedures. You know, we have hospitalists or neurologists who don't do LPs anymore. And, and you know, it, obviously we're going in a certain direction with that. And, and so I, I, I do see that it's happening. I can say that it's probably not the best thing, but I don't know how you really stop that because it's all about efficiency. And that's what drives everything, whether you're a hospital administrator, whether you're a private equity executive, whether you're the head of a radiology group. It's all about efficiency, unfortunately. Oh, well, this is getting depressing. And this, <laughs> this podcast took a sad well, turn. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get it going 
positive again. Okay. Well, what what would you tell a new grad who wants to move to a PE saturated market such as Arizona or Florida? There you go. Now, this is, this is where I do think there is some positive. I would tell you that if you absolutely have to take a job with a PE practice, they're, they're really trying hard to hire people right now. So you may actually be able to get some negotiations that two, three years ago, you may not be able to get in terms of non-competes, things like that, because you're not getting the buyouts. You're not, you, know, you might get some shares, but compared to what they paid the other people, you're not getting much. But they're really desperate to hire people. So you may be able to say, you know what, if your firm goes under, or if I want to move, or if someone else offers me a better offer, even in the same town, I don't want to non-compete. And so I think that's a positive. I also do think in the positive setting, I can't imagine the private equity debt levels are sustainable much longer. Without significant new investment, with the amount that they have to pay radiologists with decreased reimbursement, all those factors are kind of combining to make it a very difficult time to fund these practices. I don't think they're going to be in it much longer. I could be wrong, and they may get a somehow a unforeseen lifeline of cash from some you know funds that have broader vision than I do. But I can't imagine all these practices are going to make it. And so I think there's going to be pretty good opportunities to form new practices in radiology in the next two to four years. And I think there's going to be pretty significant opportunities because you're going to be able to join at an earlier partnership level than you might have had you joined even in 2014 and worked up the traditional tier because a lot of the senior partners are going to be out. I think That's there is soon. positive. So you, you think like within the next five-year landscape, it's going to be completely different and the I think PE so. firms will be on their way out, the private groups will be back on their way in? You know, I think so. I, I really do. And again, you never know, but seeing what... So in Phoenix, I've seen multiple specialties being impacted by private equity. And it's anesthesia, GI, derm, optho, radiology, obviously, ER. Not one of those specialties has had what physicians would consider a good outcome for them. Not one. They've tolerated it. You know, many of them like the money that they got, but not one of the people that I've talked to really liked the practice environment, that they would sustain it. And, and most of them would say, you know what, I think I'm going to hang it up. And if these guys, these private equity firms collapse... In a year or so, my non-compete expires, I'll restart it again. I really do think there's going to be good outcomes for physicians in the next few years. That's really great to hear. So I hear non-competes are in the news. So can you update, <laughs> update yeah. us about what's going on with those? Sure. So the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, you know, they, they put out a statement talking about non-competes and how they're impacting employees nationally. They put out some stuff that said, you know, seems really good for most employed people. I tend to take that with a grain of salt for physicians. There's always carve-outs whenever they do these broad legislation things for key employees and things like that. And I figure we'll get kind of in that. But the trend, at least currently nationally, seems to be making these restrictions go away as much as possible. Right now, it's very state-to-state -state dependent. But if there is a national legislation, I think that'll be good. Even if it carves physicians out a little bit, I think even then you will still see some movement towards the restrictions can't be as onerous. You know, many places currently have 20 to 30 mile non-competes from every location. And so if you're a radiologist and you work at one facility, but you read tele for a couple of other facilities that are, you know, in the same system, 20 miles, 30 miles away, now all of a sudden you have virtually no area of practice in the city that you're in. 
I think those things are going to go away because I think that's onerous. So I think the trend is definitely positive, but these things do take some time. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out too. Okay, I have a couple questions from the audience. I want to give a shout out to Shamit Desai and Kavi Devalapuri for helping me with some of these questions. So tell us how you really feel about physician-run real estate syndications and courses. <laughs> these guys know how I feel about that. I, I think over the last few years, we've had so much FOMO in every asset class and everything. And in healthcare specifically, you know, burnout's been an issue forever. And it became a much more concentrated issue, obviously, during COVID. And so we became susceptible as physicians as there are the rise of these huge physician social media communities. We became susceptible to be like, hey, I want to get out. You know, whether my practice is driving me too hard, whether I see my friends in the business world or the tech world killing it, you know, I, I, I just want to get out of what I'm doing. And what is my way out? First thing that gets pitched to me, whether it's meme stop, game stop, or whether it's a, a real estate fund or something like that, you know, that is guaranteeing me something. We, we all became susceptible to these type of things. And, and I think physicians specifically, at least me being one, I, I feel like this is the case. I feel like we trust other physicians implicitly, much more so than, you know, like I may be skeptical of a financial guy who pitches me something. I, I'm a skeptical person in general, but I may be more skeptical. But if my buddy or my colleague from across the country says, hey, you know, I invested in this thing. It seems to be going well. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll do it. You know, we tend to, this is that stereotype of the dumb physician investor. And there's a reason that stereotype exists a little bit is because Financial people tended to target us because we had high income and relatively high confidence and yet poor knowledge in areas outside of our own fields. I feel like physicians are now taking a page from that playbook and also targeting other physicians. I have talked to physicians who view us as a market and it, it, it really pisses me off quite honestly. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, 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 and I see... They've used the word physician funnels, which is, you know, a whole marketing term about how do you get these people in your community and then how do you sell them this and whether it's a course, whether it's an investment. I just, listen, we all do fine as physicians financially. Yeah, we may not, you know, we may complain that the government reduces our income every year and we fight and whatever, but we're still doing fine. But the scale of what some of these people have come up with, with these quote unquote you know, syndications, courses, they've gone to another level. And again, sometimes their information is useful, but I just feel like, dude, don't spend $5,000 on a course, how to invest in apartments when literally there's a book out there or there's free information out there. I, I, I don't know. That just to me is like, okay, what are you doing? But then I also think we just tend to trust people. And during this time when everything went up, everything seemed really good. So, oh yeah, this guy must be brilliant because he bought his building and $10 million and last year was worth $5 million. Well, guess what? It's probably going to be worth $5 million again in not so distant future. Yeah. And, and so I think we just have, we, we don't use as much critical analysis as we do in our own fields as we do in there. And I think just a little more skepticism is warranted. That's totally fair. Yeah. I imagine you have a similar perspective on financial advisors as well too <laughs> then, huh? I do. I will say, I think financial advisors have a role. And I really do think Listen, I'm interested in finances, so I'm willing to spend time. I think financial advisors, good financial advisors, outweigh their costs. The problem is there's far more bad financial advisors 
or very mediocre financial advisors than there are good ones. And so I think whether you choose to use a financial advisor or not, it's very important that you learn some basics of finances. And the other thing is just don't try to hit home runs on your investments. Try to do little little things and you will be fine if you continue, you know, in as a physician making good income, you will be fine. If you try to hit home runs, and I've seen it happen, you're going to get wiped out more often than not. Because there's a reason baseball players maybe hit one home run for every, you know, 15 times or 20 times they're at bat. The other ones will wipe you out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> what are some of the kind of like home runs that get pitched to, to doctors that we should avoid? A few years ago, crypto is always a big thing. You know, wh whatever your perspective on crypto is, I think the technology is phenomenal. I thought the technology was phenomenal 10 years ago. It's still kind of in that, well, what's going to happen with its stage? But one thing that I saw last year and the year before was the crypto lending, where, you know, you put your money into whatever the firm may be. Obviously, FTX was in the news. And, you know, you'll get 8% to 12% back on your return. I mean, there's no guarantees like that. There is no guarantees like that. And you should really know better. And it, that's not even a home run, right? That's just, oh, well, I'm guaranteed this kind of return. People just don't ask enough questions. There was an article today, actually, in the Wall Street Journal about another person. And this, is, this tends to hit people who are, you know, a little bit senior, a guaranteed structured product or some, you know, very financial, smart sounding thing. That would guarantee that person 12% a year. Again. Wow. I mean, returns like that. Exactly. Anytime you hear low risk, high return, your antenna should go up. It's not, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying you're better off not participating in the majority of those things and just kind of plugging along as opposed to uh, trying to do these kind of things. If you're trying to you know, invest in the next Tesla, but you're thinking it's 2008 and you're investing in Tesla... I don't have a problem with someone, you know, allocating a very small percentage of their um, net worth to those kind of things because, hey, you may hit it, but you don't want to get wiped out in that process. So that get yourself established on a good setting first, and then you can go for these little hits, but just, you know, allocate a very small percentage to that. They always have a saying, don't spend more than you can afford to lose in an investment, right? I think that's very critical. Do you have any suggestions for younger doctors to be able to do due diligence on some of these investment opportunities that get presented to us? So you can't really research everything, right? I think the first thing you, you what you just said is a very good thing is use small amounts. You know, don't invest something more than you can afford to lose. And especially when it's an unproven thing, whether it's a real estate syndication from someone who's just starting or whether it's the next, you know, big growth stock. And then if things start looking good and they start growing, okay, put more. Yeah, you didn't get the full amount of growth, but you, you know, you'll still get good returns if you do it that way. And if they don't pan out, hey, you didn't lose. Yeah, I, I should say you didn't lose that much. I think those are good ways, you know, just place your bets accordingly. I think a lot of us could do really much better if we thought of ourselves as professional gamblers and use their kind of mindset in terms of investing, not, not gambling. There's, they, there's a strategy to how they place bets. They don't just go all in on every single hand. And so you start thinking strategically, okay, I'll allocate you know, 0 .0, you know, 0 0.1% of this because I think it may go 100 times. That's what venture capital firms do. They allocate multiple bets across and 95% of them don't hit. They're hoping that you know, one or two hit big enough to make up for those things. As an individual 
physician, you're not going to have the time to do those kind of things. So I would say the better bet is to take 90% of your investments and do it in plain, boring, even the stock market is, even though it's boring, even index funds are boring and they're going to go up and down as we all saw last year. There's down possibilities too, but at least you know that that's a long-term play. It's not a, this year I'm going to double or triple my money. Over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years, that's going to put me in a good position. And then you can take a little bit of what's left over and make some of these calculated bets. And then as those original investments start growing, you can take some of those allocations, you know, the income that they produce and increase some of those things. Just, you know, going all in on these things, that's what wipes out a lot of people. And I've seen it. Gosh, yeah. Do you feel like younger doctors should set a date that maybe they want to stop working full time or anything like that and then move their financial goals towards working to that level? It depends on the individual, like how much do they hate what they're doing? <laughs> you know, like I, the print, you've heard of the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. Yes. There are some people that just cannot stand practicing and okay, fine. You have to, you know, kind of adjust for that. I think for most of us, especially in our fields, I don't think it's that bad. Things, yeah. <laughs> things could get better, things could get worse, of course, but and as me and diagnostic, I can work part-time from home, you know, for a little bit if I wanted to. I don't think you should go in with the mindset that I'm going to stop working at this point. If you do stop working, fine, you know, that's a different story, but I don't advise going in with that mindset. But I do advise some of the other principles and be like, hey, this is when I would like to be financially independent, regardless of whether I work or not. Okay. And I think that's not a bad thing. Yeah, there's definitely stuff from that movement that I think even those of us who aren't FIRE people can incorporate into our financial planning. This is another question from the audience. Do you feel physicians should have the ability to create generational wealth through the practice of medicine? Oof, that's a great question. <laughs> Do I feel they should? I don't know, because health is always one of those uh, subjects, you know. In any other business, for the most part, people would say, yeah, I think they should be able to create that. In healthcare, it's different. Right. So if you're truly practicing with patients, A, I don't think you can. If you're just talking about working as a single physician in you know your own solo practice or a small private practice or a hospital-employed situation or even a private equity, I don't think you can. Now, if you own a practice and have sold the practice and it's multiple people, whatever, yeah, you might be able to create generational wealth, but that's more the business part of it than the actual practice of the medicine itself. I think ethically, it's debatable whether you should be able to, but in reality, I don't think you can as a independent practicing physician. What are the big barriers to being able to do that as a, just like, you know, a regular radiologist? Because I don't think the term generational wealth is also kind of- Yeah, what does that mean? Arbitrary, right? right? Yeah. It, so in my mind, I'm thinking generational wealth is like- an NFL guy signing a $50 million contract. That to me is generational wealth. And I think those things always move up the line, right? But to someone else, to the guy, you know, to that player who may have not come from the best background, generational wealth might mean making a million dollars, you know? And, and so I think it's, it's tough, but I, I don't think the trend for physician compensation is going to allow you, if you're an employee or part of a private practice, unless you sell and I don't think those multiples are going up. I think the opportunity for generational wealth selling the practice has gone away, at least for the time being. I don't think the opportunities are there for generational wealth. But that being said, doing well and practicing medicine for 30 years, you can make a significant amount of money. And you know how your dependents and descendants do with that 
That may be on how you invested. I don't think that should be the goal, though. Generational wealth should not be the goal. Whenever people say they went into medicine to make a lot of money, I feel bad for them because it's just it's just getting worse and worse with reimbursements and the way the job market is. But it is a really great time to be a diagnostic radiologist right now. I'll say that much. That's been been great. <laughs> yeah. I've been around long enough to know, though. So when I got out of residency and in the couple of years right before I got out, it was a phenomenal time. And at that time, the jobs were amazing. I, I was in the military, so I kind of got locked into that side. So then when I got out, it was a terrible time. And so I've seen this cycle shift a few times. People are saying to me now, they don't foresee this cycle going away for at least three to four years. I, I don't know. I, I'll be honest. I, I really don't know. I've seen the cycle shift within three to four years before, so I, I'm not sure. But I would take advantage of it while it's good. Yeah. Well, what final pieces of advice do you have for young grads coming out of training and looking for their first jobs? I think even though I'm a financial person, I think the, the main thing is find the people that you're going to enjoy coming to work with. Because Listen, if it's a huge financial discrepancy, obviously you're going to you're going to know that right off or you're going to think about that. But if it's, you know, 40,000 or 20,000, whatever is huge to you, but you get a better vibe with the people that you're going to work with, whether it's the uh, other interventional radiologists, whether it's diagnostic radiologists, whether it's the administration that you're, you know, the organization that you're joining, pick the one that you get a better feeling about because you want to do long term. You don't want to be even though I, I, people do change jobs because circumstances change, no one goes into a job with the idea that, oh yeah, I'm going to I'm going to quit this job next year and move to here and do this. At least, at least most people don't. So try to find the best situation for yourself as soon as you can. And that may mean giving up some money on the front end. I promise you, the money, whether it's you know, if you're making four hundred thousand to start and you got four fifty in one place or three seventy five in one place, yeah, it's a meaningful difference, but if you hate the people you work with and you hate the environment at 450, you're going to be much more miserable than if you were working a little less or like the people that you worked with at 375. True words, true words. Uh, Tarang, is there anything else that you would like the young interventionalists who listen to this podcast, or actually we have interventionalists across all scales, I shouldn't just say young, but um, any IR folks to know that we haven't touched on? I will say, again, me being a DR, I, I see this in the periphery. I am optimistic about young IR practices. And like I said, I've, I've seen our group split off and go independent. I've followed people on Twitter that have done it. And I see the opportunities for young IR people who don't think in the traditional one, you know, mindset to actually have some pretty incredible developments in their uh, career. One of the positive things about social media is that you can connect with people that you would have never connected with before. And, you know, whether it's just shooting them a, a direct message or a tweet and get, get ideas about how to do this. Even though that person's in LA and you're in Chicago or wherever, there's some principles that apply and you may gain some knowledge that or some inspiration that will impact you positively. So I'm actually very bullish on uh, young IR physicians. Most of bullish on young DR physicians, but it's a little bit different situation. Absolutely. Turing, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at 
at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 